This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Any home or business can quickly become infested with mold with the introduction of a water source like a roof or plumbing leak. When your home, your belongings, or your business becomes damaged, it's not just about cleaning up the mess. It's about reclaiming your life. And that's why you need to call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. A licensed, fully insured, affordable, non-invasive solution to solving any water and mold problems. Our team of trained specialists are available with 24-7 emergency service. We will quickly evaluate your problem and give you a plan that will guarantee results. Water causes damage and mold can spread throughout your property in as little as 48 to 72 hours and can produce allergens and irritants that have the potential to cause serious health hazards. So don't waste time. Give us a call now. For any water or mold problems, call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. Call 800-442-7043 today for a free estimate. That's 800-442-7043. 800-442-7043. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Woo, Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut, man. We have quite a day here in New York City. A lot of uh, a lot of snow. I think it is surprising to people that we would have. Quite the amount of snow here that we do at this stage of the game. Uh, blizzard warding in effect and all that. Uh, I have to say, I'm every time these people run um, stories about how global warming and global, you know, climate disruption and everything, if global warming means that New York City is on average three or four degrees warmer a year or whatever it is, that sounds pretty good to me. Uh, there's a lot of places, and this is what I never, it never gets explained to me how this is. There are a lot of places where it's too cold for people to want to live. And huge pieces of land, I don't just mean Antarctica, I mean, you know, look at, can- look at you go up above a certain degree of latitude in Canada, and you look at you know, Russia, and you look at, you know, there's also, then you go on the other side, uh, go south, and there are... So many places that I feel like would be nicer, much nicer, much more attractive places to live. And this is human civilization supposed to be stagnant in terms of where populations are clustered. So we, so there's movement. We've got a lot more, we got a lot more people coming on board anyway, right? There's a lot more people that live in the world now than did in uh, centuries past. So some people say, oh, Buck, what about the places? Well, it's not, you know, find me the place in the world right now where it's so hot that nobody can live there. I mean, there are maybe a few places in the little deserts, but that's really more a function of water than temperature. Um, but, you know, I, I don't see, the, you know, if the temperate zone gets a little bigger, I don't really see the big deal. And I know we're supposed to all be so, uh, we're so terrified of this notion that climate change is going to come for us all. And, and the, the hatred, uh, the hatred that people feel for those who have questions about what is a an obviously a scientific issue and not an issue of morality, but they want to turn it into morality because for them, that's where the real benefit is. It's not about trying to save the world. They're not going to save the world, and I think they know that. For them, it's about something else. It's about something 
quite different. Their role here as being moral arbiters, in a way, or, or being people that are making moral distinctions, not scientific distinctions. And as you see here, it's you know, what is it mid-March, and we got a huge snowstorm hitting the whole Northeast Corridor. Okay, you know, tell me about how climate change is, is CO2 related again, and it was supposed to be getting warmer, but we have these. And they say, oh, one day isn't, okay, well, why is it that one day isn't a weather event that we have to talk about when it doesn't fit your narrative? But when it does fit your narrative, of course, you know, if there's a big storm, big hurricane, we're told, oh, it's climate disruption. And this is all crap. It's all nonsense. I wanted to share with you today some, uh, as, as you know, it's our, well, we have three more days. Today, tomorrow, and Thursday are our last days together on the Blaze Radio, as I've announced to you. And I'm very thankful for the opportunities that I've been given at the Blaze. Uh, I have a debt, as I have uh, told Glenn in the past and, and told him recently, uh, I have a debt of gratitude to the blaze that I will never be able to repay. And that is that they gave me a chance in this business, which is a very hard business to even get a chance in. And also taught me, gave me a skill set where I can say, and you know, because I have two things that have come together during my time at the blaze that really uh, matter will be helpful for my career. One of them is that I have had to develop the skills in many different ways. And it's been trial by fire, but learning how to be on a TV panel, learning how to host a TV show, learning how to read off prompter properly, learning how to run an interview, learning how to write for a website, learning how to write a rundown for a TV show, learning how to do a radio show, write a rundown for a radio show, how to pull that together, having the stamina to do two hours, then three hours, then five hours, depending on the day of radio, solo radio, content, what's your cadence, what's your thought process, how do you connect with the audience? I've had to learn all of that, and I've had to learn it for real, you know, without, without much of a, you know, without a, uh, a safety net without, you know, I'm, I'm up there on the wire just doing it. So that's one part of being at the blaze that's just been incredible. I've had so much exposure to so many different ways of doing media and, and had opportunities. It's, you really couldn't have created a better media boot camp than being in the blaze newsroom first and then being on the blaze TV or GB TV at first. And then the blaze TV and real news, the panel show, then guest hosting Glenn show doing a Saturday radio show, a five-day week radio show, all for the blaze, then guest hosting for Glenn, then Rush, then Sean, and uh, then starting my own show um, in national syndication now. But I mean, the blaze all, all along has just given me, it's been amazing. And I've been around now, uh, the blaze, almost six years, which means that I'm really one of the you know, long-standing on the media, on the content side of it, uh, I'm the I'm the grizzled veteran. Other than uh, Glenn Patton Stew, I think I've been around. I, I, oh, and uh, Michael Pelka, the Godfather, he's been around as long. He's been around longer than I have. Um, but there's only a handful that, that have been around as long as me. So I'm very thankful to the Blaze, and uh, I wish Glenn and Pat and Stew and the whole team down there in Dallas, Tommy and Dana, everybody. Uh, Lawrence, and now I'm going to want to say everybody. Now I'm, now I'm at like the award show mode, you know, Chris Salcedo and Lawrence Jones and everybody else. But, but it's really, mo you know, my, my, I wish them all uh, the best of luck and, and they're all great people and I think they all have really bright futures in this business. Um, but Glenn, Glenn, I, I owe it a debt of gratitude too. So that's, that's different. Um, and I, I wanted to just say that to all of you now. Uh, so, 
with that in mind now, uh, just want to give you some thoughts that I have on some things that are going on. One, other than the fact that it's really snowy here on Tuesday in New York, and I do not want to go outside, and now I wish that I could do all my radio from home sometimes. Um, I worry that the Republican Party, look, many of us have seen this coming for some time. And so in that sense, there's really no surprise. But I worry that the Republican Party is going to have to face up to what it has really become sooner than it may be anticipated with regard to spending and the more populist components of this new Trump agenda. Um, there is clearly a separation between those who got into office and have been able to been able to keep pushing until they've become pretty prominent household names in politics by being conservatives versus those who view their role as something more of a hybrid and they don't want to necessarily they don't balancing the budget is one thing keep in mind even balancing the budget which a lot of it is oh we'll balance the budget in 10 years i mean this is like saying i'm going to get you know, I'm going to pay off my credit card debts in 10 years. Uh, what are you going to do for the next, you know, what do you think happens for the next 10 years? You think it's good to be carrying around all that debt? The debt gets worse. We've got $20 trillion in debt and Republicans are talking about a balanced budget, but we need to pay off that debt or pay it down, especially as interest rates are going to be rising here soon. And no one's even talking about that. This has been exposed first and foremost with uh, Obamacare and the repeal and replace of Obamacare because now you have Republicans who are just straight up saying, I, I don't want the Medicaid expansion to go away. Too many of my constituents in my state, this is really true for senators in particular, too many of my constituents in my state like the Medicaid expansion. They like that they have free health care coverage. And it's not good health care coverage, but you tell that to somebody who's got an option of health care coverage that is free or zero, and understandably, a lot of people are going to go with, I'll take the free coverage, thank you. So that's the beginning of a much broader uh, conversation, I, th I think it's the start of a much bigger rift that's coming. And that rift is going to have to do uh, with which direction the Republican Party really goes in now. Okay, we can build a wall. That would be, that's great. Build your wall on the southern border, Trump style, and begin to change immigration enforcement priorities. And sh sure, there's a whole bunch of things that Trump says, and figure out the, you know, the vetting procedures that you want for those who are coming in this country from other countries. But there are a whole bunch of other issues that are obviously not conservative. A trillion dollars of infrastructure spending is the first and most obvious one that comes to mind. Uh, but also, uh, you add even beyond that the family leave policy, which Ivanka is very much spearheading, even though she's not officially working for the administration, at least I believe she's not. So that's a part of all of this. And, you know, as, as I look at all, of, as I look at what's happening and see the way the Republican Party is going, I mean, you just have to ask the question, is this, is this Republican Party really what it had been billing itself as for years, which is going to be a return to limited government conservatism? I don't think that's going to happen. I have real concerns about this now. I don't see a Republican Party that is going to tackle the debt because the debt's not popular. See, there's, there's what's popular and there's what's wise. And those are not always in sync. In fact, in many cases, they are not. 
what's popular is often going to be what is unwise, especially when you take a long-term view. And tackling the debt is always going to be unpopular because people would rather just spend money and have somebody else pay for it. That's true on spending and entitlements. It's also true with Obamacare. I, I feel sometimes like I'm a lone voice on this. There are two fundamental problems with Obamacare that nobody wants to talk about. One of them is that everybody has, and I say everybody loosely, I don't mean you and me and every individual, obviously, but generally speaking, Americans, I'll refer to the general sense of Americans as everybody here. Everybody thinks somebody else is going to pay for their health care. And it's true even in cases where people think that they're not having somebody else pay for their health care, but they really are. Medicare beneficiaries overwhelmingly take a lot more out in Medicare over their life cycle than they have paid into it beforehand. That's just reality. So that means somebody else is paying for your Medicare, in part. You're paying a portion of it, but somebody else is paying. And people with their co-pays and uh, their prescription drug benefits and the other aspects of this that come into play, you you say to yourself, okay, well, I'm paying for my health care. Well, no, I mean, Either your employer or the taxpayer through the government is paying for your health care in large part. And when somebody else is paying, we've got a problem. And we're all used to thinking that somebody else is going to pay. That's different from insurance. Real insurance would be everybody pays up to, and of course this is where your policy would matter, but everybody pays up to 5000 or 10000 on their on their other health care every year. Every year. Before, before a dime kicks in, that's what you'd really have to do. Or maybe it's 3000 or maybe it's 2000 whatever it is. I, I don't know. I mean, but this is, this, that's, a, that's really going to be, think about it like your car. How many of you have a, have a, a car policy where if you get a scratch on the door, it's going to cost $300 to fix, your insurance is going to send you a check for that, for a scratch on the door? I, I've never had that. Maybe you do, but most policies I've had are if you get in an accident, you're writing a check for $1,000 before a dollar gets back to you and you lost a thousand dollars, not, you know, Oh, well, I'm going to get reimbursed for all this. No, you have a thousand dollar deductible. So high deductibles are just a, a recognition of financial reality, which nobody wants, ever wants somebody else to pay. And that's true. Even of our entitlement program, people say, well, I've been paying into entitlements for a long time. Well, if you pay into something, but you take more out than you put in, then you're getting stuff. You're not just taking back what you paid in. You're getting stuff. You're getting more. And that is overwhelmingly the case. People get more out of it than they put into it. I think it's actually the, over the, like recently the boomers are estimated to take out twice what they paid in. So that means that, that people who are listening who are not baby boomers who are younger than that, you're going to be paying for it. You're paying for it. This is how we've run up $20 trillion of debt. 19 point something trillion dollars. So that's one aspect of it. And then there's the other part of this, which is the lack of a, a willingness, I think, among many of us to look, I, I do believe that somebody that somebody has to be provided care for life threatening illnesses, period. You know, no one's allowed to die because they can't get health care. Uh, that's that there is there is a moral question that comes into play here. You know, no one's allowed to be brought into an emergency room with a gunshot wound. and Oh, he doesn't have health care. So he gets to he we're just going to leave him there and he'll bleed out. I mean, of course not. But there's another side to that coin or another aspect to this, which is that when they've reformed the healthcare system such that everybody is in a position to either be covered to a certain extent by the government with Medicaid or with tax credits to buy healthcare based on their income, 
and it is possible to buy a policy that you pick that you want that, that, that you're held to. And people don't choose to do that. We have to be willing to say, well, you'll get treatment, but you're going to go bankrupt if you get really sick. You know, so if you, if you choose not to have health insurance, if you choose not to buy health insurance and you get really sick, yes, you will get treatment, but you're going to get the bill. Otherwise, well, what are we doing? Otherwise, this all just turns into a big game, a big political game. And this is what, nobody wants to say this because I know it sounds harsh, but this is just the reality. Unless we're willing to let people, once we have a system where it's a reasonable expectation that a person will have insurance, if they refuse to get insurance, they refuse to insure their health, and then they get a catastrophic illness or they get really sick, they should be, they, they should, and now people say, well, Buck, if they receive care and they don't have the money, well, what are you going to do then? Well, you know, then, I, then, then I guess you know we, the taxpayer is on the hook for those, just like the taxpayer is on the hook for people that get sent to prison, and we have to feed them and clothe them, and uh, they get health care. And you know, there's no alternative there. You can't you can't lock somebody up for you know uh, Medicare fraud just to stay in our general wheelhouse here and say, well, we're not going to give you health care, so you just get to slowly die in prison. I mean, no, we're paying for their health care, but this idea that we can have we can let people make choices freely about whether or not they're going to have health care and there won't be consequences for the consequences you're gonna you're gonna bet your bank account would have to be emptied and you're gonna go bankrupt and you're gonna have to have a bankruptcy on your record or else there's no punishments for making wrong decisions or, or else what are we really trying to do um that's that's the part of this that i think nobody nobody really wants to get into no one wants to say that everybody wants somebody else to pay for their health care and even Republicans are, are not honest about this. Uh, nobody wants to say that. And also with uh, the hazards of allowing people to make decisions about their health care, nobody seems willing to say, hey, uh, this is going to mean that if we don't make people buy a policy and they don't buy a policy, even though it's there is a, a catastrophic policy that anybody who's not covered under Medicaid should be able to buy, uh, if you get really sick, uh, you'll get treatment, but you're also going to get a bill for $50,000 that you're going to have to pay off over time, or you're going to have to declare bankruptcy. You know, that That's what real reform, that's what a free market reform would look like. I know that sounds harsh, but think about it. What, what's the alternative? You know, I mean, either you qualify, you know, you qualify for food stamps, or if you don't qualify for food stamps and you don't work, uh, I mean, it's interesting. We do this with healthcare. We don't do this with food. Now the market's taken care of, and food is so inexpensive now that nobody's country is starving. As you know, obesity is a much bigger challenge for uh, lower-income individuals than starvation, of course. Um, but the, 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 the moral questions are what get very difficult here for people, and also what punishment for bad decisions really looks like. Uh, all right, uh, I got to hit a break here, team. I'll be back right after. Stay with me. Let your voice be heard. Hello. On the Blaze Radio Network. Any home or business can quickly become infested with mold with the introduction of a water source like a roof or plumbing leak. When your home, your belongings, or your business becomes damaged, it's not just about cleaning up the mess. It's about reclaiming your life. And that's why you need to call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline, a licensed, fully insured, affordable, non-invasive solution to solving any water and mold problems. 
Our team of trained specialists are available with 24-7 emergency service. We will quickly evaluate your problem and give you a plan that will guarantee results. Water causes damage and mold can spread throughout your property in as little as 48 to 72 hours and can produce allergens and irritants that have the potential to cause serious health hazards. So don't waste time. Give us a call now. For any water or mold problems, call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. Call 800-442-7043 today for a free estimate. That's 800-442-7043. 800-442-7043. Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. All right, team, welcome back to the hut. We got uh, T minus three days and counting of the uh, Buck Sexton show on the Blaze Radio. So uh, please do, those of you listening now, if you have not already, follow me on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton is going to be where I'd love for you to go. And also, if you are. Um, uh, able to, you can follow me or you can download the show on iTunes, subscribe on iTunes. Let's go to Buck Saxon with America now and uh, you'll be good to go from there. Uh, so please do that. And yeah, I've uh, got some more stuff to talk to you about coming up here in a few minutes. A snowy day in New York City and the Northeast. Hope you're, uh, if you're in part of this blanket of snow, you are at least uh, safe and sound, warm and good to go wherever you are. And if you're in the rest of the country, just be thankful you're not snowed in. Uh, we're going to hit a break, 888-900-3393, if you want on the phones. Actually, you know what? I'm not going to take calls this next hour, so don't don't worry about that. Um, but we're going to hit a break here, and we'll be right back. Stay with me. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you all. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, a quick announcement. I know I've been telling you, I'm sorry about this. This is on me. Uh, I know I've been saying that we have till Thursday. Turns out that tomorrow is going to be the last day of the Buck Sexton Show at noon on the Blaze Radio Network. It's going to be tomorrow, not Thursday. Uh, The one and only Mike Opelka, the godfather, who was, I believe, my first ever official guest on radio so there's there's a lot of synchronicity here uh we're, we're completing the circle it's the circle of life and radio uh michael pelka will be taking over the show uh for the foreseeable um and uh, he's going to do a fantastic job and you are not only in the hands of somebody who loves radio uh and is uh, a lot of fun and, and fun to listen to He's, he's one of the nicest guys that you will ever meet. I can also tell you that. Always was super supportive of me and, and everybody else at the Blaze. Uh, and during some interesting times of change there, he was always a voice of, of calm. So Opelka is the man, and uh, I, I really um, am glad that he's going to be stepping into the 12 to 3. So uh, tomorrow's our last show. I will be live for the show tomorrow. Um, so I know some segments you may have figured out. I've had to tape in the last few days because I've been – 
schedule all over the place and running all over the city, and now we're in the middle of a blizzard. Uh, I am live with you right now. Uh, I will be live if you want to call in uh, for the noon show. I'm going to leave the lines open the whole show, and I'm going to take as many calls as we can tomorrow. And if you want to hear news of the day and such, you know you can find me at 6 to 9 Eastern. So radio continues. The Freedom Hut continues. It's just going 6 to 9 Eastern. Um, and it's a national syndication, so you can listen on Terrestrial and also on the iHeart app. Okay, enough of that. Enough of that for a second, team. I want to give you that update. But it's also fitting that the last official guest that we have scheduled here is our friend Sean Davis, who is co-founder of The Federalist. And he has some great stuff up on The Federalist now. And he joins us to just drop knowledge bombs, as he does. Sean, great to have you. Always good to be here. What an honor, Buck. Thank you. Yeah, man. Thank you. It's an uh, in- interesting time. Interesting time in, in the Freedom Hut, for sure. So, uh, Sean... What's uh, I haven't I don't think we've been able to r- r- get into it much about uh, healthcare yet. We know the CBO scoring came out yesterday. Everyone's blah blah blah. CBO is to be trusted. Oh no, it's not. CBO is to be trusted. Wh- where are you on on all of this? Is health is this a, a debacle? A stumble? It's okay. We'll make it better. It's great. Wh- where are we now in in the GOP freedom meter? Where do you place all this healthcare reform stuff? So I think where I am right now is um, I hate everything and everyone is stupid. Is kind of how I'm looking okay. at the whole thing. Uh, I think this thing has been so botched and so incompetently handled, uh, mainly by House Republican leadership, that I'm just kind of shocked at what a mess it is right now. Because the way this should have happened would have been the House just calling up and passing uh, the bill that it passed, you know, a bajillion times before in, in previous Congresses with the same stuff they've been promising to do, it's an easy vote. You move it to the Senate. That's where the actual heavy lifting has to happen in the Senate. Passing something in the House should have been easy. Um, you have more than enough votes. It's getting 50, uh, 51 votes in the Senate that's the trick. So Ryan and Kosha just passed the easiest they bill, bill they could pass. Uh, just to get to conference, because all the big negotiation stuff is going to happen in conference. Let the Senate do what it needs to do to get to conference, and then you do all the like really important, tough negotiation. Instead, uh, Republican leadership in the House has apparently decided they're going to do all of that up front, pretending as though whatever they pass now out of the House will be the final bill um, that, that's passed and signed by Trump. It just makes no, none of it makes any sense to me. The, the whole thing is just a gigantic mess that didn't need to be that way. Is, is it because the GOP, uh, or not, I shouldn't say the GOP, because there are some people who obviously recognize that this is a problem and weren't pushing for what we've seen so far. Have they lost their nerve? Are, are, are they chickening out? Is this just because they are people that want to keep their jobs and they know that Medicaid is free health care and people who get Medicaid, free health care that didn't have it before, they are probably single-issue voters, so they just they don't want to lose their jobs. So I, I think you're, you're kind of half right. I think it's about Medicaid. I, I think in general, uh, most politicians are cowards, um, regardless of how you feel about Republicans or Democrats or conservatives or liberals. Most of them are cowards. Um, and what happened is that when the, even though they were promising in previous Congresses, we're going to roll back the Medicaid expansion, um, we're going to do we're going to repeal Obamacare root and branch. Now that they're actually in charge, they want don't want to do that. And it's not because they're worried that people on Medicaid will come and vote them out because people on Medicaid don't traditionally vote. They never have. They're just not the, the type of engaged Democrat that does big get out the vote drives. 
What Republicans are worried about is big hospitals and big hospital providers who are just getting rich off the Medicaid expansion. They are making money hand over fist. Uh, If you look in Ohio, for example, um, some of the biggest employers there are hospitals. Some of the biggest donors to politicians there are hospitals, which goes a long way to explain why John Kasich uh, tells us how much he loves Medicaid expansion. It's because the big, well-funded hospitals in his state love Medicaid expansion. And I think the real issue here is that Republican leadership are worried about those dollars drying up, and they've just decided, despite their previous promises, nah, we're just going to leave it in. Even after Trump said, you know what, I'm willing to negotiate on that, I'm willing to bring the rollback forward to 2017 or 2018 instead of 2020. Republicans who previously had made rollback of Medicaid expansion part of their anti-Obamacare platform a year ago are now saying, nope, can't do it, not going to do it. Uh, even in even in the face of Trump saying he'd be happy to do it, they're intransigent. And I think it's just total incompetence on their part. How do you think the Trump administration is doing these days? I know, very broad question, but I don't know how many more chances I'm going to get in the, in the days I had to ask you this one. So where would you place the administration, what is this, day 50-something? Gosh, I don't know. I, I'm honestly so snake-bit by 2016. Um, you know, where I was convinced for a good chunk of the year that his campaign was in disarray and they're having real problems. And then lo and behold, they just blow Hillary out of the water. Um, so I look from the outside and I think, wow, they, it looks like kind of a mess. I don't know if they have a handle on things. Um, but in light of 2016, I, I like, I doubt myself on that. So I don't know. They, this may be exactly what they want. Maybe me, maybe plowing ahead with all the stuff they wanted to do. Um, but, but looking at the Obamacare thing, I, I don't see this as Trump's fault. I see this as total ineptitude from Republican House leaders. Um, he, he negotiated, the White House uh, indicated a willingness to negotiate on it, and, and Ryan and Co. just said, no, we're not doing that, even though they had promised to do that same thing last year. Um, so the health care Obamacare repeal debacle, um, I, I honestly don't lay the blame at the feet of the Trump White House. I lay the blame at the feet of the people who actually wrote the dang thing and are defending it, which is House Republicans. Paul Ryan's not convincing to you then, right? He spoke yesterday. I, I heard some of his press conference, and he said, you know, this is this is good. It's going to get hammered out. This, this is going to be negotiated. You're, you're not. He's supposed to be the, the, the budget wonk of the, of the GOP, right? I think that's a fair way to describe the perception, at least, around him. And I, I didn't find him particularly convincing when he was saying this is this is good, this is progress, and this is going to make healthcare freer, uh, patient based, more competitive, all, all that stuff. I was like, I'm not seeing it. Yeah, I understand why he says all that stuff. I don't understand why he expects us to believe it in light of all the previous promises he made. Um, going back in time a little bit, I there are a lot of people kind of in the conservative sphere who didn't like Ryan as speaker, and I was not one of them. I thought he could actually be a good consensus builder uh, within the party with credibility among all the different factions. I thought, especially on budget and tax matters and health care matters, he was uniquely suited to kind of spearhead tax reform and Obamacare repeal efforts, because there's so much procedural stuff that uh, that becomes obstacles and hurdles here, so many different rules, especially in the Senate, that you, you have to be able to navigate around and how you write the bill. He had years to prepare for this. Like, th- this is the thing that he was uniquely suited to do. And he stepped up to the plate, finally ready to take a pitch, and just, you know, whiffed it and fell down. I, I, it's the, the performance really here from him and his team 
is incomprehensible to me and in just how bad it is, how ham-fisted it is. Uh, I don't, I just don't know what they're doing. Switching gears for a second here. I see that you've had some fun on Twitter uh, setting straight some of the claims made by Senator, uh, uh, is it Kirsten or Kristen? Those types get it wrong. Kirsten Gillibrand, I'm assuming? I think that's right. I only ever, I don't ever actually listen to her. Kristen, not Kirsten. You know, I'm looking it out. It's Kristen, not Kirsten. I always get those names mixed up. Uh, so I think a lot of people do. Uh, so she says that silencers are scary and bad. What's your, what, what's the, what's the so what of all this? Oh my gosh. So, so there's, there's actually been a, uh, an orchestrated play on this. Gabby Gifford's gun control group last night put out some tweets saying, fact, suppressors don't protect hearing. Fact, foamy earplugs work better which they don't, um, n- nobody who can compare uh, two numbers together or understands, you know, how volume works would ever think that cheap foamy earplugs from CBS are going to rival a suppressor and sound reduction um, quality. And then you have uh, the esteemed junior senator from New York saying this morning that uh, if you give these suppressors to criminals, if you let criminals buy them, they can kill people in silence and then cops won't even be able to hear anything and witnesses won't know what's happening and then the criminals can just get away scot-free. Now, there's just so much wrong with that. For starters, no one's proposing that criminals be allowed to get suppressors. <clears throat> what the proposal is is that you buy a suppressor just like you buy a gun, uh, which is you know from a federal dealer with a background check. The process now is you have to apply, send in fingerprints, pictures, uh, passport photos, um, you have to wait. Right now, I think the wait time is upwards of a year to get a what is a, the equivalent of a muffler for a firearm. You have to pay a $200 tax. The whole thing's a mess. Uh, the proposal is, hey, let's just treat suppressors like we treat guns. You, you get a background check. If you pass, you get it. If you don't, you don't. And, and then there's the silliness of, of her saying, you know, it's going to make these guns silent and so criminals can get away. No, that's not how they work. What suppressors do is reduce the volume of a gunshot down to roughly the whisper-quiet level of a jet engine. So nobody's going to be getting away with them. The, the main benefit of the bill uh, to make it easier to get them, called the Hearing Protection Act, is to make it so if you have to defend yourself in your own home, uh, you're not going to deafen yourself and everyone in your family. That's pretty much it. And apparently uh, the gun, gun controllers think uh, – Deaf people defending their homes is the price we have to pay for them to have gun control. Yeah, a, a two-two-three round with a silencer on it. I mean, it's it sounds a bit like somebody taking instead of actually doing permanent hearing damage, it sounds like someone's taking a baseball bat and, and hitting the front of a car with it or something. <laughs> it's not. It's not whisper. Uh, the problem is you see all these movies where people are running around like choo-choo-choo, and, and there's I've yet to unless you're firing a twenty-two handgun with a with a special silencer. There's nothing that goes pew pew. <laughs> I think pew pew is like laser guns or maybe Star Wars, but there there's no right. silence nine millimeter or above round that sounds like a pew pew. No, because there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes into your uh, the sound of a gunshot. You have uh, the massive gas explosion. Uh, you have the uh, the sonic boom that comes from the ammunition being supersonic. You have the sound of the action. All the suppressor does is help reduce a little bit the volume of the gas explosion when that hot gas meets the cold air by kind of delaying the process of the gas meeting the cold air and letting it cool and a suppressor's baffles. Uh, but yeah, unless you're using like a 22 LR, which is a plinker round, it isn't going to do any real damage to anyone. Unless you're using that with a suppressor with subsonic ammo, you're not going to get anything like you see in the movies. We you know with the whisper quiet, 
it's still a really loud bang that's going to hurt your ears. It just might not permanently uh, uh, damage your hearing in certain frequencies. That's it. What's your next going to be on the Federalist.com, sir? Oh, gosh. This whole hyperventilating over the CBO report, um, it just as a quick aside, I always love CB- CBO um, orchestrations from people on both sides because if you agree with them, they're the uh, nonpartisan congressional scorekeeper. And if you disagree with them, they are the you know Democrat or Republican-controlled uh, budget unit. Uh, nobody ever actually cares what they say. They only care whether they can weaponize CBO. And that's what you're seeing right now with this new Obamacare repeal score. Sean Davis, co-founder of The Federalist. Check out his latest on thefederalist.com. Sean, thank you for being such a uh, fantastic contributor to the show. And uh, we're hoping you'll join us at night when you can. Absolutely. Thank you, Buck. Team, we'll hit a break right back after. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. It's like a six, maybe a seven on the 10-point snow scale here in New York City. I mean, it's really nothing that bad. I just uh, was trudging around in it. Of course, had to get my coffee. Neither rain nor snow. A tornado is not going to stop me from getting my morning coffee. Um, but it, okay, well, maybe it would actually. But you know what I'm saying. I, uh, I have to say this is another case of it's better to run with the story when you can. All the media hyperbole out there. Why not just go for it? Um, so there's that. Let me see. Uh, next hour, we're going to be doing some story time with Buck. Uh, I'm just going to be telling you guys some stories. I, I, there's not a lot of awesome news today anyway. I mean, I mean, awesome. I mean, really that, uh, pressing. So, cause this is the second to last day of the Buck Saxton show. We will, um, tomorrow have our final show and we will talk about stuff. Um, I'm just going to show up and we're just going to hang out for two hours. Those of you who have never called in before, I would really encourage you to try to call in too. Just why not? You know, it was one last, one last hurrah. Uh, the number, uh, this will be for tomorrow's show because I'll be this next hour, I'm going to be doing stories. But it's 888 900 Whoa, I was blank for a second. 888 So tomorrow, anytime during the show, you can call, and I hope you do because it'd be fun to hear some, some, voices that i haven't heard before and uh it'll be our last show here at noon and then the godfather takes over so you'll be in very good hands and also please do if you can't listen live uh, to me on six to nine uh, on buck section with america now those of you listening go on to itunes type in buck section with america now and then you can subscribe and then every podcast will just pop in your box uh, pop up in your box and then we'll be good to go all right team uh until after the break be right back. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.
now spreading freedom across the nation. This is The Buck Sexton Show. Hey, Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Hut on this lovely uh, Tuesday. Hope you are enjoying the show so far. And as you know, this is now our third to last day of the Noontime Buck Sexton Show, so please uh, do find a means to join me in the Freedom Hut as it moves 6 to 9 Eastern on national syndication. You can subscribe on iTunes, uh, which I really uh, recommend and ask that you do. Just type in Buck Sexton with America now, and you are my evangelists. You are my trendsetters. You are uh, the army of this show, If should you choose to be it, and telling your friends about it and getting them to listen to the podcast, too. I mean, if, if every person listening to this show uh, live, never mind and inc- including the podcast, too, but every person listening to the show live told two friends that there's this really cool radio show or podcast or whatever, and they started listening to it, uh, that would be an enormous win and would allow me to do even more stuff and more resources for the show, more time would be put into the show from others. Uh, obviously, I'm putting everything I have into it. So if you don't mind, uh, obviously everything has been up to this point, just give me your time and those of you who choose to uh, also support my sponsors, that's always a huge help. Uh, but if you would share the show with a friend or two, but most importantly of all, you, you listening, whoever that may be, uh, please do join me in the Freedom Hunt at this new time, 6 to 9 Eastern on national syndication and go to Buck Saxon with America Now on iTunes. All right, uh, story time with Buck. So I thought I would spend some time today, because uh, why not? I thought I would spend some time on what was really the most, I think the most fun job I've ever had, although it only lasted for three months. And some of the things that I learned from that, just because I, I haven't really told you much about this story before. So I went to a school here in, so this is now story time with Buck. I hope we've gotten through enough of the, the news, the news of the day, that we you don't mind me uh, having a little little uh, kickback session with you all now, fireside chat style. And uh, I was a student at Regis, or I'd gone to Regis High School here in New York City. It's a great place. Um, I think very highly of it. Didn't really love it at the time. It was, it is a, it is a nerd factory. It is true. There are a lot of kids, most of the kids who get in, it's a scholarship school. So everybody goes for free. And it's now, I, I don't know what the dollars and cents cost is exactly, but it's about a about $100,000 scholarship to go there. And everyone goes for, for free, and it's it's a great place. It's on the Upper East Side. It's actually in what is among the most expensive neighborhoods of New York City, but it's full of kids who are from all different socioeconomic backgrounds, all different walks of life, uh, and it's it's a really good place. Jesuit. It's a little bit progressive Catholic in some ways, but it still has some traditional and traditionalist aspects to it. Anyway, I, I played uh, soccer there. I would have played basketball there too. My basketball career was ended. And don't worry, I'm not going to tell you like the glories of my high school athletic career. I know you've got better things to do than hear that. But I would have played basketball there too, except my cornea was lacerated during tryouts freshman year by some kid who never should have been on the court in the first place, was not good at basketball at all, but just figured, well, why not try out? Well, his tryout ended my ended my high school basketball life because his uh, pinky nail more or less got stuck in my left eyeball, and uh, it was pretty, it was brutal. It was, they were worried I was going to have permanent vision loss. Uh, so, yeah, that was how my basketball career ended. 
Weird, weird, bad things that I have no control over like that, especially on the health front. I, I, I think that I somehow have had more than my share of those. I don't know why, but uh, anyway. I, w- I played soccer there, though. My senior year, I was the captain of the soccer team, so that was fun. And some of you are like, soccer, why not football? We don't really have football in New York City. The sports are, or at least in Manhattan, because there's not enough. There's just not enough field space, and the, and the schools aren't big enough. They don't have the teams for it. So you really play basketball, soccer, tennis, baseball. Those are the, you know, and then other sports that people just pick up. Ice hockey, if you want to travel the rinks, things like that. But it's not, there's not a football culture here, which was a big shock for me when I got out into the big wide world of America and, and went to a college where all of a sudden the football players were a thing. This was, a, this was supposed to be a big part of our school culture. I just thought of them as more or less the collection of many of the dumbest and uh, most irritating people I had to deal with on the campus. Not all. I had friends on the football team, too, by all, by, of course. But if you were trying to find one place in college that was the re- repository of, uh, of aggressive, stupid drunkenness uh, with jerks, it, it, the football team would have been a good place to start at Amherst. I, I had no... And a lot of professors were pretty open about their contempt for it, and I totally agreed with them. Because for a small school, my school had 1,600 students, and for a small school to have 80 people, 80 guys, so there's only 800 guys in the school, and there are about 70 or 80 guys who are on the football team. 10% of the, of the male students at Amherst College are on the football team. They'd probably say, oh no, it's only 7.8 or something, but still, it's just crazy. Uh, and it, it was... We're supposed to all get excited. The kids were my size on the football team, except for the linemen and such. But the rest of them, I mean, this was not an impressive assortment of individuals. Uh, yeah, I had no love for the football team at all. I mean, there were nice people on it. I had friends on it. But overall, as an institution, Haverford College, which is very similar to Amherst, just got rid of its football team because it's not good and who cares? But these schools have this, it's really a nostalgic fixation. The, the stories about how alumni donations would dry up are nonsense. That's not true. Athletic departments, I think, at these smaller schools keep that going. And there are some very loud alumni who are desperate to relive their youth. And say, oh, I won't give money. Really, you're not going to support your alma mater if they don't have a good athletic program? I mean, you're, these people that are saying that are in their 50s and 60s and 70s. You care about what the athletic program is now? It's just, it's ridiculous. Going on a little tangent there, but I uh, i did not have a, an upbringing. I watched football and was professional and they're amazing athletes and I get that. My family are all Giants fans. So I, I played soccer and then when I graduated from college, I came back into New York and I, I didn't really, I didn't really, I wanted to work at the CIA. It was the first job I applied for and I had a feeling I would find my way into it, but I, I finally got the conditional offer well, it took about a year after I applied, I guess. I finally got an offer from them. And it was it's conditional on completing the background investigation. So now I'm a young guy in New York. And before I before the fall, even over the summer, I, it says, well, if you complete your background investigation, now you can, uh, start, you can start at the CIA, but it's going to take many months. So I'm like, all right, what am I going to do? I'm not going to sign up to be an investment banker and work 80 hours a week so that I can leave in six months and not get a bonus for the year. And that's that's why bankers do what they, especially the young ones, it's all in the bonus. So you get a good salary, but the end of year bonus or the fiscal year bonus, whatever it is, is where they make their, they make their money. Uh, so I wasn't going to do that. And it was just misery. That would have been misery. So uh, my parents convinced me at first I was a little skeptical. Uh, I got this offer out of nowhere for the headmaster of my high school to be a soccer coach. Uh, to coach JV soccer. So the junior varsity team, which is, they break it up. So. They occasionally, I played varsity as a sophomore because, you know, hashtag 
awesomeness. No, I was I was okay. It wasn't that good. Uh, but I did play varsity as a sophomore. Usually freshman and sophomore, JV, and the juniors and seniors are varsity. That's the way it breaks down. So I was 22 years old, and I was coaching a whole bunch of 15 and 16-year-olds. So you can imagine what that is. So that's, they don't, yeah, they, they called me sir and, and at first, but uh, the age difference between us was not really that much. I mean, I'm, a, I'm a really young guy, just gotten out of college, and some of these kids are like my, they're my height, and they're 16. So, uh, but I was, I was coaching them. And I started, and I was also working at the Council on Foreign Relations at the time, which the Illuminati and the Bilderbergs, and you know, it's all it's all done at the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, the Council on Foreign Relations is a very well, a very famous, very well known think tank, and it is, uh, you know, it's it's a place that gets a lot. People are a lot more excited about it, I think, than they should be. It's just not really that interesting. Uh, it's there's some brilliant scholars there doing scholarship, but there's no special room underneath the street that connects to the whatever consulate and then there's meetings there. I mean, these are the rumors, these are the stories you hear about. Uh, CFR is not that awesome. It's not that exciting. So anyway, um, I, I was working at CFR as an intern, which was an incredibly difficult gig to get. And it was really, a, I had to maneuver and it was a who you know thing. By the way, for those, I was thinking about doing some advice this week on the show as well. I gave a this is now a complete diversion, guys. You have to stay with me. I'm sorry that I'm bouncing around. I gave a speech at Regis when I had been in media for a couple of years, just to just to a section of the senior class. They asked me to come by, and the uh, the dean I knew, you know, the assistant dean I knew well, and she was very nice to me. And she said, "Would you come by and speak to them about getting a job, you know, or what they should be thinking about for when they want to get jobs, both during and after college?" And I stood up before them, and I, this was really important. And I wish somebody had told me this. I stood up before them and I said, okay, so I'm in a, I know you guys, I went here too. This is a total separate point from the soccer. This is going to be, story time is going to be like this, guys. I'm just going to be bouncing around telling you stuff. Uh, but I stood up in front of this group of, so, so put the soccer coach thing on hold for a second and CFR. Uh, years, year, years and years later, after CIA and after starting media and having some, some early success with it, uh, although I need you all to download the podcast and tell your friends that I'm going to have real success Shameless plug, but we're at the shameless plug part of the show because uh, we only have three days left of this show. So I uh, stood up in front of this class, and it's a speech that I, I wish they would ask me to give more often because I think it's so useful, and I wish I had been told this. And that is that you're in front of these kids, and they all have, they are pretty much all number one, number two, maybe number three in their class in grammar school. And they're, they're used to doing the work and being rewarded for it. They're used to study hard, get an A, everyone's impressed. That That's their view of the world and they're very rigid by the book kids for the most part i was always a little more my mom would probably laugh right now but i was always trying to i you know i look for the angle you know i'm always wondering do i really need to do this is there a better way to do this is but with the and i, I you know i would do it unless it was math in which case i was just looking for the angle and not finding it and, and not really managing to find an easy way to do it either um so i stood up in front of these kids and i said to them you need to understand that getting jobs is not fair, it is not merit-based, it is, merit is a prerequisite for all of you, especially because this is a room full of kids, unlike some of the private schools in the city where Mumsy and Daddy aren't gonna be snapping their fingers and making stuff happen, you know? Mumsy and Daddy never snapped a finger to get me a job ever of any kind. True of these kids in this room. Uh, that was the same, same deal with them. So I said to them, you need to understand that you're going up against people 
who are going to have uh, done everything they can to schmooze, to maneuver, to get letters of recommendation, to get phone calls made for them. And, and you have to embrace that to be successful, really, now, being smart and being hardworking is not enough. That's, a, as I said, a necessary prerequisite. Without that, you're going to have big trouble. But being smart and being hardworking and being honorable is really good and it's important, but it is not enough on its own. Uh, you need to find out who can offer you the job. You need to find out who you might have a connection to, either alumni or family or friend, and establish relationships. Because getting because they always, there's always more candidates for the job than they can take. And for any good job out there, there's always more people... And it's a tight, it's a it's a tight call. It's a tough question for them to answer, uh, and oftentimes, little things make all the difference. So some people refer to this in that book, The Tipping Point, as weak associations. I'm not, a, you know, weak associations can be great, but they also it's kind of like a lottery ticket. I mean, sure, it can be helpful, but associations. I mean, find people who will be mentors. Find people who will invest in you. Will make a phone call for you. Care about your future, and it's tough, but it requires hustle. So you have to play that, you have to be willing to play that game or else you're always going to be left behind by those who do play that game. And this is, and I know this is not what people tend to hear in high schools and colleges. I, I remember at Amherst going through the process, and I guess this is probably a show that's most useful for the younger folks who are in Team Buck or college age or in their 20s or 30s, the people that are still trying to figure out their careers, or maybe if you're going to make a career switch, I think this is all valuable stuff. This is what I've learned. Um, but it, it's really important that you understand that you know you got to play this game. You got to be willing to get in there because otherwise you're going to be losing out to those who do who do. And when I say play the game, that sounds like it's underhanded or bad. I don't mean that, but it, it requires more. It requires more than just a great resume. It requires more than just really good grades and going to a good school. Because there are too many good schools. I mean, this is all changed now. And for a lot of jobs, especially people that want jobs that are, if you want to be a professor, if you want a job in media, if you want a job in at a top law firm or at a financial services firm, you know, Goldman Sachs, one of these places, you're not just competing with uh, the top tier of decent American schools. You're, uh, comply, uh, uh, you're competing with schools from all over the world now. You're competing with the top students from Mumbai, from Shanghai, from London, from you name it. And, and they're using their family connections and they're using their, their uh, different edges and angles to try and get these positions. It's just a completely different game now. And I wish somebody had told me this at a, at a younger age. You, know, you, you need to hustle. And I mean, you know, yeah, my parents would tell me, but, you know, parents, you only realize when you're you know, in your like late 20s, all of a sudden that your parents were right all the time, you know, at least for me, it was, you know, you're in your 20s, all the stuff they've been saying to you, you go, wow, they were really right. You know, nothing good does happen after midnight. That's, that's a true statement. You know, maybe it's 1am, but that's, a, that's true. Uh, people say, oh, well, good things happen. And I go, well, maybe good things that you put in place at decisions you made at nine or 10 o'clock that you follow through on at midnight might be okay. But anything you decide to do, or that just comes up on the fly at 1am, it's just not a good idea. It's just not a good idea. Uh, it's a rule of thumb, not a good idea. So I told all these kids, you know, you need to get out there and market yourself and be aggressive and understand that it's not fair and you're going to be disappointed and you're really going to end up cheating yourself if you think that 
careers are based on fairness now. There is no fair. All right? it, it, it is a fight. You are not, when you're trying to get a job, everyone needs to stop thinking that there's this process and you show up with your resume and you have great grades and it's all going to work out for you. Uh, no, it's, it's not like that. It's think of it more like you're outside a bar and there are bodies flying around everywhere and you're just trying to get out there safe and sound. Like you may have to crack a bottle over somebody's head. Um, this is obviously a very intense analogy, but you know what I'm saying? You, you might have to throw down because everyone around you is throwing down and it's a melee and you know, it's a ruckus and that's the way it is. And if you sit there and you go, well, I didn't start this fight. I didn't want this. I'm, I'm a good person. You know, all of a sudden, you know, you're going to get your teeth knocked out. So uh, th these are the things that I learned. Um, and, and at every step of the way, every step of my career process, it has been relationships with people that I was able to convince should they should believe in me that was the deciding factor. Yeah, I had I went to a, a college that, I mean, you know, it's not a university. They usually rank colleges and universities separately, but it's usually in the top three colleges in the country believe it or not, Amherst College, not, you know, Harvard's a university, Stanford's a university, colleges are, the top colleges on these lists tend to be you know, Amherst, Williams, uh, Swarthmore, um, yeah, those, those, are the, those are really the big three for the liberal arts schools, um, there are some others. Okay, I actually, uh, I'm going long here, I haven't even told you about soccer stuff, story time with Buck continues, my friends, uh, we're going to get into soccer coaching and fun stories, and I promise it'll be good, just uh, stay with me, be right back. Let your voice be heard. Hello. 888-900-3393. On the Blaze Radio Network. Sexton. Hey, welcome back to the Freedom Huts. Uh, our story time with Buck will continue, but first, our sponsor this hour is SilencerShop.com. Uh, you're only going to hear me talking about it for a few more days, team, but Silencer Shop is simply the best place you can go to get a silencer for your firearm. They've got all the top brands in stock. You can get an excellent price on it. You can compare, see what the different styles are. Of course, get a sense of what's in your price range from what's on that, and then apply that to what's on the site. Uh, and in terms of the paperwork and the process to get a silencer, silencershop.com knows how to get you through that. And they do more of those applications than anybody else who's comparable in the biz. So check them out. Go to silencershop.com. There are testimonials on the website. They've got great customer service. And I'm sure once you do it, I'm telling you, you'll be so happy you got a silencer. It's such a cool accessory for you to have for your firearm. And it makes the whole shooting experience more enjoyable, protects your hearing, protects your ears. Go to silencershop.com for more. Again, that is silencershop.com. Help make the world a quieter place. Story time with Buck, including his uh, illustrious soccer coaching career here in New York City, continues, and also how to get a job uh, for those of you who are on the younger side or making a career switch. Uh, all that stuff. Buck's hashtag wisdom continues. Stay with me. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. This 
is the Buck Sexton Show. Team, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. So I was telling you about jobs and my sense of how one goes about getting a job. I know, look, some of you are going to apply to schools and you're just going to get, or apply for jobs out of school and you're going to get them or you're going to career switch and you're so impressive on paper and in person that it's just going to happen. But in my experience, every job that I've really wanted that I've gotten, and I've gotten rejected by, and I think some of what makes me most able to, there, there are, well, four things that make, that I think of that make me really able to uh, empathize with people is uh, just some out of the blue, very annoying health challenges that I've had, which factors into my thinking about, um, uh, factors in my thinking about healthcare and the problems people deal with. And I've, at different times in my life, I had to go through so much nonsense, a tremendous expense, money I didn't have to get no answers from doctors. And look, I'm lucky. None of these were issues that were, you know, I wasn't facing anything that was life-threatening, but some of them were very uncomfortable and very annoying and, and persistent. And celiac disease being the most prominent one that took quite a while to figure all that out. Um, but I've had others too. And so I have people that are sick and that aren't getting answers and that don't have the money to deal with it the way they want to. I, I understand that. I've lived, this is also why I think I'm very passionate about talking to you about healthcare. I'm not just like, Oh, I read this Heritage Foundation study. It's, no, I've been in an office where I'm going, so you're telling me you can't, you know, this probably won't do anything to change my condition, but, and it's not going to be covered by insurance, maybe, and I don't really have the money, so I'm going to put it on a credit card, but this is my only option. And this is, and this is healthcare in America today. And, and I have health insurance, but it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, so I've, I've dealt with all that. That, you know, re- I think all of us have this, like rejection and rejection and disappointment in our personal lives, love lives, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you know, rejection in particular. I mean, I, I've, I've taken, I, I, it's good though. I've taken more than my, I've, I've had rougher rejection, I'd say, than with uh, one or two exceptions, serious disappointments as to where something was going. But I, I've taken some just, not literal, but I've taken some, you know, flying wine bottles on the chin in, in terms of rejection. I mean, it just, you know, I think everything's great and just, you know, just there's somebody else that, you know, we're not going to go on that third date. I mean, that's happened to me. But the good thing is once you get, once you've had enough of those, you do build up a tolerance. Once you've had enough, I think this is great. And actually this person, and then you realize this person doesn't even want to see you for a second or a third date or whatever. So early stage, usually when someone gets to know me, we, we get along fine. But early stage, I, I've had more. So I, I get that, man. I, I get getting shot down and uh, have had more than my share of those. Uh, and then with jobs. I think I said four things, but really three things is what I meant. So my math, again, math is not something I excel in. But with jobs, I have been, I applied for so many different jobs over the years and had uh, all kinds of interviews where I really felt I was uh, put down or undermined in the interview and and people were uh, pretty, pretty nasty to my face. And and then, of course, in media, even though I have a job and, and have had a job now for, uh, almost six years continuously in media. I mean, I can't tell you how many things I've gone, gone out there for, tried to, tried to add into what I'm doing. And, and sometimes, you know, you just want to reach across the table and be like, I'm better than other people you're hiring to do this or, but, but it doesn't, like I said to you, it's not about fair. And media is probably the, is short of being an actor, the most unfair profession you could be in. Uh, the decisions that are made are terrible on a consistent basis, all across the board by all sorts of folks that get to make decisions. Uh, it's a really, it's a really skin thickening business, um, and 
not something that I recommend, as I always say, anybody who has a, uh, a, a spouse, kids, and a mortgage, don't go, don't career switch into media. If you're already in it, fine, you know what you're into, but don't, don't career switch into media. It's, it's too, it's unfair. It's too risky. Okay. Back to soccer and to some happier things. So I want to talk to you about this. I was, uh, my voice also from doing five hours of radio a day has just been like, it constantly feels like my throat's a little swollen and my voice box is always breaking. That's kind of fun. Side note. Anyway, I was coaching soccer, and at first, and I remember this, I was out with some friends at a bar here in New York City, and everybody's going around, and I was working at this internship at CFR, which is a very intellectually elite place. Uh, Boring as heck to work there, though. I mean, I was just, and I was doing the most, you know, nonsense, not nonsense, but the most sort of routine clerical research, and, and, and clerical clerical, you know, filing things making copies. They didn't make me get coffee, but I would have. Probably would have rather gone out and got people, people coffee than sat there. And the guy who I worked for, the guy I worked for, his name was Henry Siegman. And and I remember, I haven't kept in touch. I don't know what's happened to him actually at all. But I remember uh, him bringing me in. And he was just like, so I'll need you to print. He was a much older guy. To print off all of my emails and highlight the relevant points for me to read through when I can get to them. So I was like, so, so wait a second, you have any, you have email and you have a computer in front of you, but you want me to get access to your email and to print out your emails and then to highlight in those printouts. Yes, I would like you to highlight in the, in the email what I should read. And I was like, uh, very strange. Hold on. Hold on one second, team. I got to hit a break here. I'll be right back. Buck Sexton will be right back. The Blaze Radio Network. Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton. On the Blaze Radio Network. All right, team, welcome back. Uh, pardon me for a second with that. I just had a little bit of a tech issue and wanted to go into a break. Uh, so uh, I was talking to you about, oh gosh, we're talking about a whole, oh, CFR. And he's, oh, I'd print out the things that I want to read off my emails and highlight them. And uh, and I found out that he was a, he was a big, uh, like, liberal lefty. And the other two people working for the big liberal lefties, and they figured out that I was conservative. I was honestly too brash and too dumb right out of college to hide my political beliefs from people. I was stupid enough to allow it to be uh, written on my re- to be written. I wrote on my resume or typed in my resume, you know, director of recruiting for the Amherst College Republicans. That's just that was a kiss of death for I'm sure any number of jobs I applied for. A terribly dumb thing to do, but I didn't know any better. I, I just didn't know what the you know what the differences here would be. I just I just couldn't really. Uh, understand right off the bat or that people were going to have an issue with this, that they were going to say that this was, anyway, uh, that this was going to be a problem for me. So I, moving on here for a second, I was uh, working at CFR and that was kind of a fancy, yeah, fancy-ish thing to do, but I was working at CFR and sure enough, I got this offer to be a JV soccer coach. And I figured, okay, well, you know, this will be this will be fun. And I was out with all these friends of mine who had gotten these fancy jobs and done all this fancy stuff, 
uh, and they were working at investment banks and they're working at all these really cool places. And I told them that I was thinking about doing JV soccer and they actually, a, a bunch of them, and these weren't close friends of mine. These were just people that I knew from the city. They made fun of me. They thought that this was, you know, ha ha ha. You know, they thought that this was all just, you know, one big funny joke. And yeah, they, they made fun of me and I was not happy about it uh, at the time. Um, they are, oh, you know, this is why you went to Amherst and did all that. So you, and by the way, they were a bunch of idiots. And the ones that said this, I ended up not really spending much time uh, getting, you know, uh, these are not people that, that hung around in my life. But anyway, they're, they're making fun of me being a JV soccer coach, which, by the way, as any of you who have ever coached JV anything, I, coaching is awesome. Coaching is such a fun job. It's so cool to get out there and coach. I love it. I wish I could coach at a really high level. Um, but I don't have the background, really, in, in athletics to, to do that. So I... Where was I on this one? I was, you know, trying to find a better sense of, uh, you know, trying to find a better sense of what my schedule would be like. And I remember I asked, uh, I asked the guy, uh, Henry, uh, what the, what his sense of, you know, whether I should, uh, yeah, whether I should do this or not, it would it hurt the timing. And to his credit, he was really supportive. He was like, yeah, man, go for it. You should go do this thing. So he didn't say it like that. He said, well, I think coaching soccer is a fantastic idea for you, young man. And yeah, so so good good for him. I mean, he was cool about it. But it meant that I had to leave CFR where I had to wear, a, you had to wear a jacket and tie every day to be at this internship. So I was leaving in a suit. I would wear a suit to this thing. And then I would go straight from the Council on Foreign Relations in my suit to meet the kids out at the field usually for, uh, oh no, I mean, sorry, meet them at the school. Uh, sometimes I met them out at the field for soccer practice. And it was, it was fun. I mean, it was great from the start. Uh, the only part of it that I really didn't like was making cuts in the beginning. That was not, because I remember what that felt like. And it, it's so easy as an adult to look back on what it's like for, kids, uh, you know, and, and realize like, who cares, you know, your high school athletic career, what difference does it really make? And it's not a, uh, you know, it's not something you get too excited about one way or the other. And, you know, sure enough, uh, when you're that age, it means a lot to you. It has a lot to do with your, your confidence level has a lot to do with, um, you know, has a lot to do with, uh, how you feel about yourself at that age. And, you know, and having been having been cut from things, uh, I knew that it, re it really stinks. And I remember when I cut the kids from JV who came out because I was in charge of tryouts. And all of a sudden, it's just I'm making a list of kids and I have a couple of days to watch them play and figure out you know, who I'm going to take and who not. And I told them all, I said, look, this is the, you know, I read off the names for the, for the team. And after that last day of tryouts, I said, anybody who wants to talk to me about an honest assessment as to what they could do for the team to make the team next year, or just to, to talk to me about why they think, you know, if they think it was unfair or anything, I will stay behind practice today. And one by one, I'm happy. And, and a bunch of them did. And it was, uh, I, I, of course, kept my word and spoke to each one of them. and was very honest about it. And I, I think they appreciated that. Um, I think the kids appreciated that I, I wasn't just making these decisions and then it was all you know left on me to and and, and then you know I, I wasn't going to hear anyone's anything about any of this stuff
So uh, I'd spoke to him. One kid was crying, and that that you know that didn't feel good. I I wasn't trying to make him upset. He actually was a pretty good player, but he was just a, he, was a re, he was much smaller than the other kids and was getting pushed off pushed off the ball a lot. And he was only a freshman, and so I figured by sophomore year, you know, maybe he'll grow a little bit and 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 be in a position. But I always remembered that one that uh, you know he was really upset, and I understood. I mean, he wasn't crying like you know screaming, and he wasn't a baby, but yeah, he was tearing up, and I get that. And I, and I didn't, uh, you know, his kids are, you know, I guess I said 15, 16. No, they were 14, 15, I think. That's right. 14, 15. Um, and so anyways, he was talking to me and he was upset. So then we got going on the season and the season was just awesome. And we had such a good team and I got, we get so fired up and I actually would play and practice sometimes. Uh, I would kick on some cleats and, uh, go out there and, you know, knock it around on the field and, uh, uh, you know, I, I think they appreciated that too. So I would, when I would, we'd do drills, I would sort of run the drills, but I also was able to get in, you know, get in the mix a little bit and show them some, show them different moves and things. So, uh, we were a really good team. We ended up going, uh, I think it was, uh, I think the official record was 11, one and one on the season. We almost went totally undefeated until the semifinals of the city championship, which I think at the time was the best that the JV soccer team had done in, I don't know, I don't know how many uh, decades, but like 15 years or something. It was a, it was a long time. Uh, we got so far. We came so close to in that last game to winning. Uh, I remember that it was. We had uh, it was such a tight tight finish at the end there, um, and the parents really took took a liking to me because I don't know. I, I they could tell I loved it, and we get really fired up during the games. And I don't yell at sporting events. I don't get excited watching sporting events in terms of you know yelling and clapping. I don't really understand that, especially if you're at home and you're watching on the TV. I just can't get that into it. Uh, but with my kids, man, I was yelling and running around the field, and it was great. And uh, there were some crazy moments. You know, I had some parents of the opposing team yell some pretty bizarre and aggressive and occasionally profane things at me across the field. Uh, people get really into their kids' sports in a way that you sort of wonder – how they've become so detached from reality and, and even like the consequences under law of doing certain things if they were to follow through on them. Uh, you know, don't, don't want to usually yell at a, at a coach and an opposing team that, you know, you're going to find him in the parking lot after the game, you know? So that sort of stuff happened too. Um, but it was, I mean, we, we had a couple of really standout players and it was such a great fun season. And it was the first, it was really important for me because it was the first time that I ever found Something that I got paid for, and I got paid for, you know, it was, I was paid very, very low. It was really an honorarium. I mean, it was the equivalent of like a few a few dinners or a few nights out in New York City for three months of coaching. And it was the first time that I ever realized you can get paid to do something you love and it's really cool and you really enjoy. And now I'm not going to say that the CIA was service and I thought it'd be really cool. I didn't love it. I liked it. Uh, but there are parts of this job. Parts of doing media, really this, doing radio and being able to talk to all of you, that I do love. And I do think it's really a gift and a blessing that I made. Just as it was awesome and I got fired up to go out there on the field with those kids and we were winning all these games and they were loving it. And it was a really peak experience for them and for me. Uh, every day I get to get on radio and speak to uh, Team Buck, uh, speak to all of you, is is a good day, really. And I try to be thankful for that and, and understand that I am very blessed that even up to this point, I've been able to make a living doing something that I love and that I, I find important. And it's certainly important for me. I mean, I, I love it. So 
that's my little soccer coaching story. I might have some more details uh, later on in the week about that or also some other aspects of all things. Uh, team, oh, aspects of all things. I don't even know what that means. I'll be back with you tomorrow. Uh, please download Buck Sexton with America Now on iTunes. Tune in tonight, 6 to 9 Eastern, however you can. Uh, please do that as well. And until next time, my friends, uh, Shield Talk. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. 